us this morning as we, as we worship our God, as we sing praise to him, as we will come to his table, as we sit under his word. Uh, it is good for us to gather as God's people. God has given us his body so that we would worship not just as individuals, but as a people, as God's people. And so it is good and right for us to gather and to sit under his word. And the portion of his word that we're looking at this morning is Psalm 62. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there. It's also printed in your order of service. Uh, if you're new to us, if this is your first Sunday, we are going through uh, various psalms during the summer. We, we did last summer, we're doing this summer, Lord willing, we'll be doing it again uh, next summer. Uh, and, and one of the reasons why we're coming to the psalms throughout the summers is because the psalms are uh, this beautiful expression of the breadth of human emotion. This is one of the reasons why I fell in love with the psalms. Because in the psalms, we have joy and celebration, We have doubt and lament. We have longing and question. We have the breadth of human emotion. Sometimes we have all of those things in one single psalm. God gives us these words to express the the deepest longings and desires that we have in our hearts. Sometimes those longings and desires that we don't even have words to form on our lips... It gives us words now to express what it is that we have experienced in this world or in our own lives. The Psalms are inviting us to to embody what it is that God would have for us. That there are times to lament and there are times to celebrate. That there are times to, to long and there are times to be filled with joy. And this morning, what David is inviting us to is to wait. To wait. Now, I think I stand on pretty firm ground when I say uh, we don't like to wait. (laughs) Uh, Maybe that's an understatement. Maybe a more uh, appropriate way to say that is we hate to wait. (laughs) We cannot stand waiting. I mean, just think about uh, text messaging. I want you to think about this for a second. Not when you you are receiving the text, but when you send the text. So you just sent one of the over 15 million texts that get sent worldwide in one minute. Over 15 million texts, so you, you've received it or, or you've sent it, and, and you know, kind of maybe not uh, exactly, but you know intuitively that, that generally texts are read pretty quickly. In fact, 95% of all texts that are sent are read within three minutes of receiving it. And so you expect an immediate response, right? That's what we do. We don't know that the average response time of a text is 90 seconds, but it is. But, but we know that it should be pretty quick. And so 90 seconds comes and goes, and, and then 120 seconds, and then three minutes, and an hour. And, and I mean, you know, forbid that it would be a day. <laughs> but, but it starts to create anxiety in us, right? I mean, I mean, did I say something wrong? Did they not understand? You know, maybe I should put that little emoji because then they would have known I was just kidding and I wasn't really angry. And, and have I become that guy? You know who that guy is? If you don't know who that guy is, you might be that guy. But have I become that guy and so they've blocked me now? Like my texts don't go through and we start to get nervous and worried because we expect immediate response. We don't like to wait. We've actually been trained for immediate response, and it's not just with text messages. It's with everything, right? It's, it's we go to the fast food restaurant, and it took five minutes rather than three and a half minutes for our burger and fries to come out, and so we start getting frustrated. Fast food 
give me a break. This isn't fast food, right? Or we sit at the, the light and we start to get filled with anger because the light's not changing as quickly as it should and we have to wait even longer or, or an ambulance has gone through and now we missed it and we have to sit through it again because it's going to ruin our day. We don't like waiting. Dinner's taking too long. The light won't change. Our boss hasn't responded to that presentation, told us we did a good job. We're, we're still waiting for that acceptance or denial letter to come in the mail, or, or I know they don't come in the mail anymore, in our inbox, right? We're waiting for it, and we hate to wait. We can't stand it. And yet, waiting is a part of the human experience. Waiting isn't something new to our experience with modern conveniences. It's something that actually the people of God have been doing from the beginning of time. I mean, think of Noah, right? 40 days of rain, 40, day, 40 nights of rain, but, but he was confined to that ark for roughly about 370 days. He waited for the rain to come, and he waited for it to reside until he could come out, right? Till he could leave that ark. He waited, or Israel. Israel in Egypt for hundreds of years, they waited in slavery and bondage for God to deliver them. And when he finally did, when they left that land that was not their own, they had to wait again in the wilderness to take possession of another land. Or David, he's anointed king, but he has to wait for Saul to, to abdicate the throne or to be killed or to die before he can ascend. He had to wait. And then a promise is made that one of his children would sit upon the throne of God forever. And so he waited and he died and never saw that son come. And for hundreds of years, the people of God waited for the Christ. They waited. It seems like to be the people of God means that we are going to be a people who wait. It's not just the Old Testament, it's us, right? I mean, roughly about 2,000 years ago, the Apostle John wrote at the very end of Revelation, Jesus' words, surely I am coming soon. <laughs> 2,000 years later, and we are still waiting. It prompted John to say, come, Lord Jesus. We wait. And so too does David. In our psalm, as we're going to read, we hear him say twice, my soul waits. He's surrounded by men who want to attack him, men who take pleasure in lies, men who are two-faced. They say one thing, but their hearts are somewhere else. They're embracing the very opposite of what they say with their words. And how does David experience this misery and confusion? How does he respond? He waits. But why does he wait? Actually, the better question is, for whom does he wait? Let's read Psalm 62. To the choir master, according to Jeduthun, a psalm of David. For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. For God alone, O oh my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. 
On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, did you hear it? What David is waiting for? Who David is waiting for? I mean, it's evident, right? It's so clear. He's waiting for the Lord. And in case we would miss it, in case we're unsure, David makes it abundantly clear. Four times in the first seven verses, David uses the words only or alone in reference to God. I wait alone for God. God is the only rock in my salvation. He waits for him. But why that language of waiting? Well, you see, waiting indicates a, a sense of trust and dependence upon God. And David makes this clear in verse 8 when he says, trust in him at all times. You see, by waiting on the Lord, by looking to him, David is trusting and depending upon God. It's a reflection of where he is putting his trust. And so that has to cause us to ask, what are we trusting in? Who are we waiting for? I mean, think of all the things that David could have trusted in. David was the king. That meant he had great power and wealth, right? Men are surrounding him. Enemies are seeking to attack him. He could have easily, with one word, called the cavalry and, and foot soldiers to his beck and call, and he could have sent them to go to war against these men. Or he could have said with one word, open the treasury, and he could have used all his riches and his wealth to buy him victory. But David doesn't turn to wealth, and he doesn't put his trust in men. What does he say? I wait for the Lord. There's so many things he could have waited in, waited for and trusted in. What are we waiting for? What are we trusting in? Now, we don't have a treasury full of gold, and I don't have an army at my beck and call, though coal's kind of strong and... But it's easy for us to trust in our wealth, right? It's easy for us to think, well, well, as long as I have that 401k, as long as I've accumulated for myself maybe land or, or a home, as long as I've accumulated for myself this, this little bit of savings, then, then I, can, I, I can not worry about this world. And the anxieties and troubles of this world, they'll just seem to fade away. It's easy for us to put our trust in wealth, even though we may not have a depository of gold. But what does David say? He says in verse 10, If riches increase, set not your hearts on them. Now notice what he didn't say. He, he's not condemning wealth. Okay, don't hear that. David's not saying that, that wealth is bad. He's not saying that it's evil. He's not saying that if you have lots of wealth, sell it all, right? Take a vow, vow of poverty and move out into the desert. That's not what he's saying. He's saying if riches increase, don't put your trust in them. He's saying, if you have wealth, do not put your hope in them. Do not wait for wealth to build. Wait on the Lord. 
Okay, so if it's not wealth, maybe it's men. Again, we don't have an army, but, but it's easy for us to put our hope, our trust in men, in power, in influence. But again, David in verse 9 says, Those of low estate are but a breath, and those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up, they are together lighter than a breath. That word for breath there, it, it's literally the Hebrew word for vapor. For vapor. David is saying don't trust in man because man is like that morning fog that we drive through and it seems so, so heavy and dark and strong, but, but just the smallest little breeze or the smallest ray of sun and like a vapor, it's gone. He's saying man is but a vapor. Don't put your trust in him. I mean, how, how important this is for us in our day to be reminded of this because it is so easy for us to put our trust in power and influence, right? I mean, just, we just heard recently, right? A new Supreme Court justice is going to be nominated and sitting on the bench. And it would be easy for us to look, now, now don't hear what I'm not saying, this is an important decision, and we should pray for our president and for our Senate and for the Congress. We should be praying for them to make a good and wise decision. This is very significant to, the, to our country. And yet, our hope does not lie with who sits on the bench. And we do not wait for the right person to move into the Oval Office and we do not trust in those who walk through the corridors of Congress. We don't put our trust in men. We don't wait on power and influence. We wait on the Lord. As powerful as a Supreme Court justice is, as significant as the president is, as strong as we might think we are, we are but a breath. So do not put your hope, your trust in man. David says, wait on the Lord. Don't trust in man. Don't wait on wealth. Wait on the Lord. That's who we wait on. And why do we wait on the Lord? Well, David tells us he's our salvation. That's why. Look at the language David uses for God. God is my rock, my fortress, my mighty rock, my refuge, my salvation. Now, if you're a Christian here this morning, when you hear salvation, we automatically go to salvation of sins, and rightfully so, right? Amen? Yes. When we hear salvation, we should think God has saved us from our sins, right? That our sins, they have been nailed to the cross, that Christ has took our judgment upon himself, that they are no more, we are new creations, that that is the good news, that is our only hope in this life, that our sins have been forgiven, that we have been saved. That is the good news. It is the best news. And so absolutely we need to think that. And, not but, <laughs> and God not only saves us from our sins that reside in our heart, but he saves us from the sins that reside in this world. You see, God's salvation, his good news, is not just for our souls, it's for the world. It's so that the creation, as Romans 8 tells us, will one day no longer groan under the weight of sin because the, the redemption of man will be made known. 
Salvation extends beyond simply our souls. I mean, think about the salvation that David witnessed. Yes, the forgiveness of his sins, but also, I mean, think, think about it. If, if there was ever a time that David would have feared, it would have been when he was standing in front of Goliath, right? Or if there was any time that he was going to falter, I mean, wouldn't it have been when Saul was seeking him and he was hiding out in caves? And if he was going to tremble, wouldn't it have been when his enemies were pursuing him and surrounding him? And yet, in each instance, God showed his salvation. Right? God was David's fortress against Goliath, and he was his refuge against Saul, and God was his rock against his enemies. Time after time, God delivered and saved David. He showed his power and his love. David could have trusted in man He could have trusted in himself, but look what he says in verses 11 and 12. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work power and love. David is saying that God overflows with a desirous love to save, but it's not just a desire. God actually has the power to do it to accomplish the salvation that he desires for his people. There's that word again. You remember it from last week? Steadfast love. You remember last week I said there's two Hebrew words we should all know, right? The first is Yahweh, the covenant name of God. And the second, do you all remember? Chesed. Very good. Chesed. God's steadfast, covenantal love, there it is again. It's it's amazing how often it shows up when you start looking for it, especially in the Psalms. And what David is saying is that God's covenantal, steadfast love is poured out on his people. This word, it beautifully encapsulates who God is because God's love is like a rock that can't be broken. His steadfast love is like a fortress that can't be breached. His love is like a refuge that shelters his people. David calls on this love because he's experienced it. He calls on this power of God because he's seen it with his own eyes. And friends, if you are a Christian, if you are waiting on Christ, if you are trusting in him, then you know that power and love as well. Because in the cross, the power and love of God is on display to defeat death and evil and sin. In the cross, we have God's power and his love beautifully kissing in one moment as God rescues and delivers his people. And it is that same power and love that we continue to wait for today. You see, there is a day coming when God's power will make all things new. That is the promise of Revelation, that there is a day coming when all things will be made new, that all the sad things will come untrue, when all things will be made new by his power and he will lovingly wipe away every single tear. And as I already mentioned, the creation will no longer groan under the weight of sin. But man will be revealed. The redemption of man will be revealed because sin will have become dead forever through the perfect justice and power of, and love of God. That the love of God, the steadfast love of the Lord and the power of our God, it will reign from shore to shore. It will fill this earth. The glory of the Lord 
will fill the earth. That is why we wait. That's why we wait for the Lord. He's our salvation who comes with power and love. But we know that, that we still wait. Right? It's easy for us to get uh, um, over-realized in our victory. Right? Theologians call this an over-realized eschatology, where we think that, that we have this triumphalism, that, that everything is just going to, to become good and beautiful before Jesus comes, that, that we can start to live that way. We can, we can start to live as though sin has finally and forever been defeated when it has only been defeated in part, right? We only experience it in part, though it will, we will experience it in full. And we know that evil has not been fully vanquished. We're living between the times, right? D-Day has come, but V-E-Day still awaits. Victory is ours, but it is not in full. And so what do we debt? How do we wait? What do we do? We wait by telling God our concerns. As we await for that day when Jesus will return, we tell him our concerns. Now I know that twice David says he waits, his soul waits in silence. And so that probably conjures in our minds this image of David holding on to his need and his concerns and his difficulty and not expressing them verbally. But I don't think that's how we're supposed to understand that word silence. You see, David's not entering into this zen-like experience where, where everything is contained internally. That's not what he's doing. We have to remember the Psalms are poetry. They're poetry, and so this word is being used metaphorically. You see, the, this word silence, it's getting at this idea of stillness. The stillness of David's soul. By saying my soul waits in silence, David is saying my my soul is resting in God. It is still before him. That David's not going to take things into his own hands. and He's not going to busy his soul with trying to solve all the problems that he cannot solve. He's going to rest in the Lord. In fact, we know this can't be a literal silence because David's actually not silent, is he? <laughs> I mean, this, this psalm he wrote for us and he wrote for God's people to sing. And then in verse 8, he says, pour out your heart before him. Call out to our Lord. You see, David isn't advocating for a waiting that looks like a stiff upper lip or a resolve, whatever come, come what may. No. Waiting looks like crying out to God. We tell him what is in our souls, and that's what we see throughout the Psalms, isn't it? I mean, the psalmist leads us to go to our God and say things like, God, have you forgotten your people? To say things like, Lord, I am surrounded. To call out to him, my king, evil men are threatening me. To say, my God, how long? The psalms invite us to cry out, to call out from our souls. You see, we hear throughout the Psalms the aching of man's heart finding expression in song. And so we actually wait by telling God our concerns. We wait by telling him our hurts and our pains. And it's not because he's not aware of them. Like, this is new to him. We call out to him because it's an expression of our trust and dependence. You see, the very reason why we call out to God is because we believe he can do something about it. 
We cry out to him because our cry is an expression of faith. It's an expression of waiting. We tell God our concerns, but we also tell ourselves God's truth. Now, I don't know if you noticed this, but, but verse 1 and verse 5 are almost identical copies of one another. I say almost identical copies because there is a slight nuance. In verse 1, David is speaking about his soul. For God alone my soul waits. This is what I'm doing. This is what my soul does. But then in verse 5, he speaks to his soul. For alone, O my soul, wait. I love this. I love this because David knows what is true. He expressed it in verse 1. But he is needing to remind himself of what is true. I love this because it's so human. I love this because this is my experience, right? I know what is true, and yet I need to hear again and again and again what is true. right? Every morning I need to awaken and say, this is my Father's world. Every morning I need to awaken and go, this is the place where God has placed me. Every morning I need to be reminded of the power of God and his steadfast love that is unfailing. And so David speaks to his soul. This is so good for us because we easily forget and become impatient. And so in times of difficulty, in times when it feels like you have waited too long, we need to tell ourselves, God is my rock. In times of despair, we need to be reminded of God's truth. He is my salvation. In times of fear, God is my fortress. In times of anxiety, God is my refuge. I cannot be shaken. We need to tell ourselves the truths of who God is again and again and again. And this isn't just when times are difficult, but it's also in times of celebration. You know, I think it's in times of joy and in celebration that we often forget to tell ourselves who God is. Right? I mean, think about it. You, you're given that job that you've been wanting for so long. Or you've you purchased that home that you've been looking at. Or, or, or you finally have that relationship that you have been asking God for. And when that relationship comes or you move into that house or you get that new job, we're filled with joy and celebration. But how often do we go, praise the Lord. Thank you, God, for answering my prayer. Thank you, God, for giving me what it is I asked for. Thank you for being my rock and my fortress again. It's so easy for me, at least. Maybe this isn't your experience, but it's easy for me to just kind of move on. He's given me this good thing. Well, what's the next good thing I need to ask for now? He's given me this good thing, but what about this difficult thing? You see, it's even in times of joy and celebration that we need to be reminded that every perfect gift comes from our Lord. That he satisfies the needs of his people. That he gives us exactly what we need. Sometimes it's not what we want, but what we need. It's even in times of joy and celebration that we tell ourselves God's truth. But we don't just simply stop with telling ourselves what is true of God. We also tell one another. While we wait, we tell each other. David in this psalm has spoken to God. He's spoken about his soul. He's spoken to his soul. And now he speaks to his people. Look, verse 8. He turns to the people and he says, Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge, not just for me, but for us. 
God is a refuge for us. You see, the truth of who God is is not only for David's good, but it's for the good of God's people. And so you know what this means. You know what this means because I I say this, it feels like at least every month. You know what this means. It means we need each other. You've heard me say that. We need each other. It means that I need you. I need you. And you need me. And we need one another. We need to be telling one another the truths of who God is. Especially in those times when we are forgetful, when we are impatient, right? We need to hear from one another. I mean, this is why we gather for worship. This is why we come together, and this is why we're in small groups together, and this is why we meet for Bible studies together, and why we meet over lunch and coffee and drinks. This is why we come together, because we need one another, because Christianity is not a lone ranger religion. You are saved as an individual, but you are saved into a people, a people for us to walk with and to speak to and to love. We actually witnessed it this morning, didn't I mean, we witness it every Sunday because we sing together and we confess together and we hear words of assurance together and we eat, we eat at the table together. But we see it most poignantly in that baptism, didn't we? Yes, it was Andrew and Melinda who presented Silas and it was me who put the water on his head and said those baptismal words in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But but he was baptized into a people, right? You took vows. Do you, do you remember them? You turn over in page four of your order of service. Do you remember this is what you said? That you received Silas Jan Hanko as an infant member of this church and promised to surround him with Christian love to assist his parents and to set an example for him of genuine Christian faith and virtue so that he may early in life Know the reality of personal salvation and rich fellowship in the kingdom of God. Do you hear what we are saying when we make that vow? We are saying we will wait with him. That we will tell him the beauties of our God and our King. That we will surround him and Andrew and Melinda as a body. We will surround them and walk with them and tell them and declare to them the truth of who God is, that we will walk with them and surround them and wait with them. But we don't just do it with Silas and Andrew and Melinda. We do it with one another. We wait together, Regina. And Chris, we we wait with one another speaking the truth. And Gary, we need one another to declare the truths and beauties of our Lord. We wait together. God calls us into a people, not so that we would be on our own, but so that in my times of difficulty, people would speak the truth. So that in my times of celebrating, y'all would rejoice. So that in our times of weeping, we would weep. Y'all, we tell one another what it is that we are waiting for. And who it is we are waiting for. We do this with one another. Because left to ourselves, we will become impatient. And left to ourselves, we will think that God has forgotten. We'll be like Frodo. (laughs) In the very beginning of the Fellowship of the Ring, there's this beautiful scene in which uh, the, the hobbits, they're waiting for Bilbo's birthday 
They're getting it set. They're putting up the tent, and they're pulling out the food, and, and the ale is coming out, and, and they're waiting for this day when they will celebrate Bilbo's 111-sies, right? 111. His birthday's coming up. It's, it's next month, so you guys can celebrate with us if you'd like, but, but they're waiting for that day. They're waiting, and Gandalf is driving in along the road in his cart and his horse, And Frodo stands before him and he crosses his arms and he looks at Gandalf and says, you're late. And I wonder if sometimes when especially things seem particularly difficult and burdensome and heavy, if if we look at the world and and we we want to cross our arms and, and look at God and go, you're late. But do you remember what Gandalf said? He looks at Frodo under the brim of his cap and he gets this little sly smile on his face and he says, a wizard is never late, Frodo Baggins. Nor is he early. He arrives precisely when he means to. And friends, that is even more true of our God. Galatians tells us that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. When the fullness of time had come, what that means is that at just the right moment, God was not late and he was not early. At precisely the right time, Christ came to save his people, and he is coming again at the exact right time. And when he comes... He will do what Ephesians tells us he will do. He will unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Friends, there is a day coming when the wait will be over. And it will not be any longer than God has allowed, and it will not come sooner than God will permit. There is a day when the wait will be over, but as we wait until that day, we wait by saying, Come, Lord Jesus. Come, quickly make all things new until that day we wait for God alone. Amen. Our God, that is our prayer. Come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. You have promised that you will come soon, and so we long for that day when you will come, and the waiting will be no more. But we also know that that day may not be tomorrow or next week or a month or a year from now that we may be waiting many years. And so we ask that in our waiting that we would trust in you, that we would know that you, our God and our King, have come in power and love and that you will come in power and love again, that we would wait knowing the truth of who you are and telling it to one another. Help us to wait with faith longing for that day, calling out to you daily, declaring our need and saying, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. Do this, we pray in Christ's name. And God's people said, amen.